This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by Bella Catering. Bellacatering.com.au is the place you can find them. They're one of Sydney's best catering companies. They've pivoted to home delivery of delicious food that you used to have to actually cater for huge events. Now they can deliver all this delicious food to your home catered events with your growing number of people that you're allowed to have in your home in the greater Sydney area. Go and seek out their staff. They're great people. Glenn and Maria are wonderful. We appreciate them for being a part of the show this entire time during this entire pandemic. So support them. Bellacatering.com. Dot au. Guys, thank you for listening to One Heat Minute Productions. We have a banger of a week again. Great guests coming up. Great shows coming up in our feed. The final episode of Increment Vice, the 45th episode, is this week. Do not miss it. Subscribe to One Heat Minute Productions. You can listen to it. It's been an amazing series with our host, Travis Woods. Get on that and subscribe, rate, review. We have a banger of a week. We've got great shows coming up. If you can support us, check in the link. But now, here's the show. And I would always advise, people always ask me, yeah, uh, the production companies in the studio system and they, even the independent productions is also stupid and they do not, want, do not even want to read my screenplay. Well, I, my answer is just roll up your sleeves, work where there's real intensity of life. Don't work in an office, work as a, as a bouncer in a sex club. something like that work as a guard in in a maximum security prison uh, and earn the money in half a year and then make your film no matter what what's the worst otherwise what was the worst job that you've had the worst the worst job that you've had i worked two and a half years as as a welder Hmm. uh, in a steel factory the night shift but uh, it, that was during high school because it's actually I, I knew I had to make my own films. Nobody would finance them, so I worked. But but the real worst, uh, no no, it was a much shorter one. It uh, being um, a parking attendant at the Oktoberfest in Munich. <laughs> at, when I was 18, there was still part of this gigantic meadow was a parking lot, and you had to deal with 3,000 drunk people every single evening. And it's not, it was not like here in America, zero tolerance. Bavarian policemen in, in the uh, late 50s or early 60s would just let you drive and only if you, if you were half unconscious, they would drag you out. <laughs> and so to, to deal with 3,000 drunk people every night, that's, that's a tough one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. 111 minutes down. Only 26 minutes to go after this one. And I'm joined by a dear friend. Um, When I first started tinkering and blogging and trying to break in and sort of being a Padawan to the great Dale Sinton at 2G, uh, 2GB um, uh, and to, uh, sorry, 2UE rather, um, when we were doing a movie podcast, I met the great man that I'm talking to now who had kind of done it all and he'd spoken at you know the Australian Film and Television uh, Radio and Television School. He's spoken to the Australian Centre of Movement Image. He's interviewed everyone who could have been interviewed in this country. Uh, he was the host of the I don't know like cult classic event team Popcorn Taxi. He's also just one of the sharpest film minds 
ever. And he's a bit of a mensch in our community because, um, you know, there's a, a kind of a few people, myself and the awesome Maria Lewis, who you guys have heard on the show before, who kind of benefit from this guy's uh, stamp of approval so many times. Uh, and I, I just love him to pieces. We don't get to see each other in face-to-face nearly as much as we should. And COVID, that means zero amount of times. But he's literally one of my favorite people to talk to. And uh, and he's been hiding. He's been hiding his talents, uh, doing what we all do, making cash in the corporate world, when his talent is being a curator and a, a spokesperson for the arts and now he gets to be on all the president's minutes with me it is the great oscar hillstrom oscar thank you so much for being a part of the show well thanks very much for that um uh, low-key introduction uh, it's <laughs> <a pleasure here. laughs> as low-key as it gets you know me this is how it works my man thank sure. you so much for being a part of it um look we've been having like a great chin wag i know that you, there's many things that we can dive into but i want to dive into the minute to start with because i think that'll lead us off into so many great things to talk about guys totally. if you if you're if you're watching right now one hour 50 minutes on the dial it's the 100 um uh, 111th minute as i said we've just seen carl bernstein and uh, Sally Aiken sprint across the floor because she's revealed something about a relationship. And we have probably one of my favorite and forthright exchanges from Woodward in this moment. So let's check it out. Oscar and I are going to watch it right now. You guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and talk about it. Ken Clausen told me he wrote the Canuck letter. The letter that said Muskie was slurring the Canadians. Clausen, the deputy director of White House Communications, wrote the Canuck letter. When did he tell you this? We were having drinks. Where were we? My apartment. When did you say he told you? Two weeks ago. What else did he say? He didn't say anything. Come on, you're hedging. Do you think he said it to impress you to try to get you to go to bed with him? Jesus. No, I want to hear her say it. Do you think he said that to impress you to try to get you to go to bed with him? Why did it take you two weeks to tell us this, Sally? I guess I don't have the taste for the jugular you guys have. Claiming it was all a misunderstanding? Absolutely. Sally's got it all wrong. I never told her that I wrote that letter. We were just shooting the breeze about the election. She's an awful... She's an awfully good reporter, that Sally Aitken. She really is. <laughs> I, I, another... This is like one of my favourite moments in the entire film, and it's not for anything but Penny Fuller who plays Sally Atkins phenomenal reaction to how forthright and how like being on the other end of a fellow journalist, like literally as she puts it going for the jugular at her about Mm. a piece of information. It is just a stunning, it's just a stunning turn. It's a great little moment in this film. It's another sort of sort of trigger for a whole bunch of great scenes that are coming up. You know, I got to, house and a dog and a wife and a cat <laughs> whatever Ken Clausen eventually says that you guys will unpack for you guys on a future episode but man I love everything about this minute I love everything about this scene I love the staging I'd love the, the, the production design it's just it's so wonderful well one of the most fa- fascinating things for me is that it's classic Redford yes so Redford has this serious delivery when he's talking to people and I don't know any movie that he doesn't do it in, uh, whether it's Sneakers or uh, whether it's uh, The Great Gatsby or, you know, whatever you like, um, even, you know, Marvel movies, whatever. He's just delivering it straight at him as hard as he can. But 
in that just gently, gently Redford way. Um, can you guarantee my safety? And did you, was he trying to impress you so you'd go to bed with him? It's the same, same, same vibe. It's a great thing. Um, and obviously in this situation, uh, it works so well. It's, I love that you said you referenced sneakers because it is, it's, it's the, re and in sneakers, he's like recalibrating. If you like that way, he's like, can you guarantee my safety? And then the first time he says that he's asking the question and then he's, the emphasis just slightly changes. Can you guarantee my safety? And then in this one, that's like, no, I'm going to say it again. Cause I want to hear her say it. And it's like, and then he do, hits it again, just on that mark. It's De Niro. De Niro is kind of known for it. Like the repetition to like trip you up. Morgan Freeman's got that great trick of pretending that he mishears you to make sure that you're listening in the scene. It's a great technique as an actor. Like I'm going to pretend I mishear you because things are going on and we you know we're at a real space, but yeah, man, I, I, I love this for that scene. And just, the she penny fuller has a way just to look at you and 40,000 thoughts and like the whole perception of who Woodward is in this relationship, you know, telling Carl and expecting that can the Ken Clawson writing the Canuck letter, this revelation, she's expecting Carl to be the guy that would ask the tough question or maybe assume the tough question. <laughs> you assume that that's the answer even without asking her. But the fact that Woodward kind of like, I think he like hits her like the Titanic in an iceberg in this moment because she's just like, holy shit, who is this guy? Where's he been? This, you know, this, you know, a green guy's only been in the newsroom for nine months. This guy's now arrived. He's right here in the scene with us. And he's, he's, he's challenging me for this information. And the other side of this um, is a, is a, it's not a double header. It's a triple header. And the really interesting thing is Hoffman and his enthusiasm. Yes. And it's kind of like, I've got this, I've got this great thing, but you know, getting it, that's just not enough. I need the why, I need the extra bit. And this is one of the fascinating things. One of the great themes of the movie is that it's one thing to know, but it's another thing to prove it. And it's another thing to, you know, um, to coin the phrase, follow the money. Yeah. Um, this is the thing that makes the film so interesting because um, following it through, but also taking it up another level. So that kind of Boy Scout, ishness that Hoffman puts in there is kind of topped off by Redford yes. and it really brings home the casting because you I don't know if you've talked about this before but you know there was one person who was going to play Woodward and that was the producer um, <laughs> but who was going to play Bernstein and that was either Hoffman or another person who could be just as big as star at the time which was Patino. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people like De Niro, they weren't on the radar at that time. Not that you have a De Niro and Wood, um, Redford combination. But um, if you'd imagine sort of flip the coin, could Al Pacino have pulled off that kind of sophomoric enthusiasm in a way that underscores Redford but doesn't overpower it? And that's a really interesting thing because, you know, Pacino in those days, he had the quiet intensity. He didn't have the kind of roaring fierceness that he had as an, as an older actor. It's, it's like act one Godfather, you know, Michael mm. in his army suit. He can be yeah. Bernstein in this moment. Like he's got that enthusiasm. He can, he can totally, un, he, he, he does such a beautiful way of like just complimenting absolutely everything that James Kahn is doing and everything that Duval is doing. And then, mm -hmm. And then it's like, it's like, then the tide turns 
And then mm. the moment that he's clenching his jaw and he's got a black eye and he goes, there's nothing personal, Sonny. It's strictly business. It's like, you can <laughs> see, you see Duval in the background go, Oh shit. Something, <laughs> something's going on with Michael. But I think, I think what's great about Hoffman is that Hoffman in this moment, and this is a great credit to him because obviously he's a very meticulous guy. He, he's a guy that we love because he seems like he's, he's constantly on the seat of his pants. Like he's always making it up. There's always an element of like, we can definitely cut a corner here. And like, they obviously want to show that there's journalistic ethics, but, and to your point, they've got a, it's so easy for them or, or not easy, but it's like, there's, you can have a breakthrough like with Jane Alexander's bookkeeper. You can have a breakthrough like in this moment. And it's then asking the questions that gets people to be able to verify what happened. Like Sally's just one person. They've got to get Clawson on the record that says I admitted to doing this and then they need the leverage to do it. And then it's like, shit, how the hell do we do that? So these next layers of questions start to build on that. And yeah, I, I kind of love that about Hoffman. He's the flying on the seat of his pants, Bernstein. He's still a bit blustery. And look, even the real Bernstein, my friend, Sean Burns, who's been on the show and I mentioned this many times, but I just love it. He's like, um, Carl Bernstein recently wrote sort of a bit of a, a bit of a hit piece on, you know, the Trump administration and, uh, Sean sort of, you know, captured it. He's like, look at Carl Bernstein still out there writing 109 word lead in sentences <laughs> to an article <laughs> about the American president. It's like, he's still that badass. He's writing these really ferocious pieces and, you know, Woodward's the establishment guy, but Bernstein, that, that rawness, that like, fuck you attitude that he's got like, and, and that little bit of improvisational sort of energy. I think Hoffman just like grabs that and just turns it up to 11. Like he's, he's our guy. Well, that's the thing. I mean, and the, the interesting thing you talk about, he's doing that with the, the current president, but at the time these guys were new. Yeah. They did not have the chops. This was no. an accidental handoff for a guy doing the kind of the, the local, bums rush um, um, police blotter reporting. Like this was never a thing. Yes. They were never meant to do it. And it's kind of fascinating where it's kind of grown into something so amazing. But then, you know, it parallels like the story um, of the story, William Goldman putting together this screenplay, which, you know, the book was, he was handed to him unfinished in a kind of uh, photocopied form with notes all through it before it was published. And they kind of knew it was, it was going to be a big thing, obviously, but at the same time, uh, he had to turn this into its now famous structure, which is how do you tell this story where everybody knows the ending? Well, you just piss off the ending and then you can actually <laughs> fit the 13 major points of the story in there. And one of the most fascinating things is this connection between setting up the idea, can we make the connection, and then pulling it off and saying, yes, we can. And these kind of story structures are the kind of mimic to what you get when a hero can complete a task and then move on to the next thing in the same way as you see on uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where it's episodic. Yes. He does one thing, moves on to the next one, does one thing, and so on and so forth. With this one, it's a similar thing where it leads to the story is so well written that it happens because this happens then because of this, because of that, because of that. And you're inexorably led to the next thing, which is the genius of the, of the structure of the story. Yes. But then what I really like about this, this whole uh, art mimicking life. So Bern, Bernstein at the time was a young reporter. Nobody knew who he was. 
and then a couple of years later, it hit the hit the news, and he was as famous as any journalist had ever been. And at the time, his new girlfriend um, <laughs> was a young lady who thought she'd give this screenwriting a bit of a crack. And so she went to his her boyfriend and said, "Oh, look, can I have a crack at it?" He said, "Sure." I mean, it has been written <laughs> by the Academy Award-winning writer of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, but sure, you have a crack at it. So that's why William Goldberg um, thought that uh, Robert Redford, when he handed him the new script and said, look, uh, Carl's girlfriend has had a crack at it and changed a few things and, you know, let's, we're all trying to make a, a better script. Uh, he said it was a, and I quote, a gutless betrayal. <laughs> and basically, it just, he was off the picture. Um, and when he saw it, eventually he recognized most of the stuff and he saw some bits moved around and fascinatingly, the one thing that wasn't real that ended up in the script was written by Nora Ephron yes. and it was this kind of fake Hollywood moment. Um, and that's for me, the most fascinating part of this whole thing. Whereas, you know, um, the guy who decided that he was going to be the, the, you know, ethically superior journalist was the one guy who allowed something that kind of made him look good, but didn't actually happen. <laughs> and, and also it seems like such a cliche for a guy that is so cool to be like, Oh yeah, I'm going to get my girlfriend to pump me up in this. It feels so yeah. empty. It's just like, come <laughs> on, Carl, come on. This is so empty. And, and, you know, Efron became, you know, a wonderful writer and a, you know, filmmaker sure. of no, in, in her own life. And, it caused this big controversy. And if this is the first episode you're listening, obviously welcome to the show. And we mm. talked about it and touched on it in some ways and Oscar has synthesized it so perfectly, but it's like at the end of the day, despite the fact that, you know, Goldman's off the picture and, and those sorts of things, Goldman looks at this movie and even internet boffins have looked at his very, cause he kept very meticulous uh, dated versions of his screenwriting to make sure that he got the appropriate credit. Ultimately what they did was, trim some bits, do some slight moves, but like 88 or 80, 89 or 90% of this script is literally a Goldman special. Like it's all Goldman. They found the movie is, the movie is in the structure. The movie is in the genius of like, like you said, this could be Herculean task by task, like as classic as you get, but it mm. does it with such sort of organic happenstance that it like tricks mm. you that there's no structure, but there is a structure. Mm. And the foundational thing, which you also said before, which I still marvel at is sometimes, sometimes it takes an outsider to come in and actually tell you what, like to, to like give you the tweet level version of the work that you're doing. You think you're, you're working on a thousand page manuscript and someone gives you a tweet that's better than the thousand page manuscript where you just want to tear it apart. And that is precisely follow the money because that's mm. what these guys did. And that mm. didn't, that's not in the book. That phrase is not in all the president's men, the novel. It is not a Carl Bernsteinism. It is not a Woodward. It is, it is a pure Goldmanism of like mm. follow the money. And, you know, um, in, in a past life, I worked in a financial institution and there was one time where I was training a whole bunch of people who were about to answer phone calls from customers. And I said, every phone call that you have, this is maybe, a, or maybe it was an all the presidencies and that ha it happened many years ago in my brain. And I just didn't recognize it until now thinking about it. But I said, every conversation is where's my money. 
I said, that's every call you're ever going to get is where's my money. <laughs> it's like credit card application, personal loan, mortgage, whatever it is. Where's my money? Where's my money? Sometimes you have to tell people it's not their money anymore. They're going to be angry at you. Sometimes you have to wait for their money. Again, but that's the foundational thing. And that's what I, I think. I, I, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I love, I love the alch al alchemy of this whole movie for that reason. It's like he, his script is such a part of it. There was that conflict, but without that scaffolding, this movie just doesn't like, it just doesn't work. Like there's, you know, I, I think the revisionist history of his Goldman script not being great is just, I almost think it's farcical because so many of his mentees and people that can look at his career go, no, it's, it is obviously Goldman script, but then you have the, you know, you've got Gordy Willis and you've got Alan Cooler and you've got Redford and you've got Hoffman and you've got Jane Alexander, you've got Robards like that. You've got all this insanely talented people that give them that, that secret sauce and it all just comes together. Mm. These are the 11 secret herbs and spices. And here we go. Like that's this movie. Well, that's, this is the thing. I think uh, it's kind of like um, the, the devil's greatest trick. It's, you know, <laughs> making you believe it doesn't exist. And that's the thing with this movie. It's so authentic in many ways. And that authenticity is what he was striving for. I mean, for me, I remember as a, like learning that the set was a set and it wasn't shot the, uh, in the corridors of the Washington Post. It blew me. I just couldn't understand I how still... anybody could create it. I still like can't it believe it. So the, yeah. the, there's a scene, and, and not, not to cheat on the next minute with another great guest of the show, but there's a, <laughs> but there's a, but, but there's just a brief moment that actually tails off in the phone conversation that ends our minute, which is, mm. Clawson hangs up the phone from Redford, uh, Red, um, uh, Redford's Woodward, and he and he and Bernstein are shooting the shit about like sort of debriefing on the conversation. The call goes to Sally. She goes, guys, it's him. They run around the desks. Now in that run, the camera does this great sort of side, like it's a side pan and it's not like a whip pan or anything like that. It's, a, it's actually a tracking shot. It's kind of a halfway between a pan and a track and it just corrects itself with this micro pan and then tracks along to this new position for both guys in the office. And it's so effortless and it's so immersed in the space that it's like, it's, it's like, you know, people use the term these days, like it's such a flex, but it's such a production design flex. Cause like it just, you can look anywhere in this office and people are doing stuff and they don't, it doesn't look artificial. It doesn't look like they've just, you know, got a matte painting here or that thing doesn't lead to this thing. There's people working from one end to the other. It's absolutely incredible. And just even that, just the beautiful staging of the conversation here, running back to Woodward at the other side of the, uh, the office. It just, it blows me away. And like, it's to the detriment, unfortunately of Spielberg's the post where he's like, I have to find a new way to have this office set up and look and a, and, and a feel and like occupy one particular space because you can't recreate that. Like we don't have the budget <laughs> to recreate like these guys did in, in, in 75, 76 when this movie was made. It's just incredible. Mm. 
Yeah. No, for me, it is, it's still, I mean, it's also, it's kind of a, an alternate universe where um, at the Oscars, all the president's men won the Oscar rather than Rocky and the kind of cavalcade of, um, I don't know, I won't say emotional movies, but kind of big tent pole movies that Star Wars and, and Jaws and, and and Rocky and all these kind of movies, they kind of set us up for the 80s mm. in a way that All the President's Men was kind of a throwback to the 70s where that kind of conversational, not conversational, but less bombastic, less rah-rah, less um, stupendous action um, no longer became a talking point of the entire cultural experience. It yes. became part of, you know, um, the smaller world of Miramaxes where, yes, sure, you might get one or two Oscar nods, but you never took home everything and you never replaced the conversation that was being had by people who enjoy comic books. Yes. Um, and it's <laughs> this weird shift where, you know, during the 70s, um, Stan Lee couldn't get arrested, um, but now he's a god and yes. vice versa. You know, you're... you're um, the kind of people who make all the president's men are highly rewarded within a very small fraction of the culture, but not in the way that people who create marvelous Marvel movies. <laughs> and you, you you touch on the great point there, which is there's kind of like in that Oscars year, you got mm. all the president's men, you got network, you got taxi driver. <laughs> and rocky and it's like and it's like on a spectrum like obviously presidents in some ways has an uplifting ending about like you know the pursuit of sort of truth justice um and just sure. like you know and it just like that that scratch of not knowing and that and that like little itch of uncertainty and that determination for the truth becomes this mm. uplifting thing you know you've got to have boot leather you've got to keep putting in the work but you can make you can affect change and so in many ways it's like that uplifting en ending but then like if you look at it on the spectrum it's like taxi drivers at the bottom and network you kind of interchangeable with their views of humanity and then <laughs> presidents also has that kind of very in in some ways um very very skeptical very you know very challenged and very sort of uh, candid view of huma what humanity is. And then you've got this aspirational quality in Rocky. That's like, people just want to be that aspirational. People want the rah-rah people want the trumpets. People want that sort of thing. And it's like, even though the first Rocky is so blissfully doesn't end with Rocky winning, in fact, ends with him losing, which is kind of good. It's like the ending of presidents and Rocky both share that thing, but it's like that, that, that world, it was like, we just want to, we just want to hug. We want that comfort of those things we we don't want we don't we don't want your taxi drivers we don't want to be Travis Bickles we don't want to think that the devil is controlling the television networks like it uh, like in network and it's like well maybe there you know maybe there's a lot to be said about, about those movies now I think they're actually probably hopeful portrayals of humanity in the context of where we are right this minute seriously though I mean if you think about it like that is a fucked up that is a Fucked up lineup right there. Oh my there. god! Oh my god! And to think, Travis Bickle—he's the one with the happiest ending of all of them. <laughs> he is. He's just a good guy. Wins in the shootout. It's great. Wins in the shootout. The girl starts riding in his cab again. Bernard Herman playing him off. 
I mean, don't we all want Bernard Herrmann Spoiler playing? <laughs> Spoiler alert for one of the greatest films ever made. Oh, no, look, no, you, somebody's you, going to be listening to this and think, well, what is this taxi driver I've heard so much about? And who is this Robert De Niro character? Yes. Somebody has to learn sometime. you got to do it. And this is a service that we provide. You've probably already seen its greatest ripoff. It's called The Joker. Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> all right. So I've got to tell you my Sam Robot story. Please. I mean, like Jason Robert, not Sam Robert's story. Jason. Son of Jason Robert's. Do you know he was this, his mum was Lauren Bacall. That's a pretty good, anyway. Um, so Jason Robert's, um, obviously in this story is terrific and um, gives them that level of authenticity that, you know, you it's just adds to the thing. Um, but also one of the most fascinating things about it, uh, they had to tone, they had to tone down the banter in the, um, in within the actual um, uh, story conferences, uh, the actual stuff that they originally had was much much funnier. Um, but the uh, Washington Post gets Post guy says, "No, no, this makes us look like clowns." But the irony is that Goldman actually took the stuff verbatim from their story conferences. So don't make us sound like we actually sound like, because then we sound like idiots. But when it comes to idiots, my favourite story is. Jason Robards was actually cast in a Werner Herzog film. Oh my goodness. Um, some people know this, not everybody knows it. Um, so there's a great and fascinating film called Fitzcarraldo, which uh, is set in the jungles of an, the Amazon River. And it's this guy, Fitzcarraldo, who's a bit of an opera buff and decides to sail a boat up the Amazon so he can um, go and see the, uh, the, the famous Caruso in. Um, in person. Now, I won't tell you anything else about it. If you haven't seen the movie, please go and see it. It's incredible. But what you will see is that it doesn't star Jason Robards. The reason why <laughs> is that he quit halfway through um, because he was so terrified of the jungle. Um, Werner Herzog uh, and he had a, a wee bit of a falling out. Um, Herzog had cast him and Mick Jagger in the film um, and it's just the most incredible thing to see Mick Jagger and Robards on top of a bell tower screaming out at the citizens of Iquitos that they need some opera in their lives. Uh, and what happened was um, Robards said that he couldn't come back because his doctor would force him to come back only if he had a heart-lung machine installed in the middle of the jungle. Now, this is a place where it's hard to get candles and diesel, <laughs> let alone any kind of electricity. So, you know, it was just ridiculous. Um, so essentially um, there were people who were recovering from plane crashes uh, that had to go through the jungle. Um, my favourite story is Jerry Hall came in to visit Mick Jagger in the middle of the jungle for a visit. Oh, my um, goodness. If you ever get a chance to learn the story of... The Fitz making of Fitzgeraldo, it's almost as good as the movie itself. I actually think it is better. Um, there's a movie called Burden of Dreams, which is shot by a chap called Les Blank. And that's one of the great uh, kind of how to, you know, making of movies. And the official story is that um, uh, robots had amoebic dysentery and had to go home. But that is not the truth, according to Werner Herzog, who has been quite um, uh, emphatic on this one. <laughs> but... Um, the thing is, the guy was stuck in the jungle. His lead actor quit 
he had to cut him out of the part. He had to cut out Jagger out of the part because it didn't work with him in it because he was shot with robots. So he had to recast the film and then shoot it all over again in the middle of the jungle with Klaus Kinski. Um, so in, in one of yeah. Kinski's most iconic performances. Oh, my God. My favourite story about that is the um, Indians who referred to um, Herzog as uh, Tiger, the great Tiger, after Kinski had another massive hissy fit and meltdown, went up to him quite seriously and said, look, mate, do you want us to kill him? Because we'll, we'll off him for you. <laughs> and... <laughs> Uh, if you imagine that in a Peruvian Amazonian <laughs> machanga um, and so essentially he had Kinski's hands in his uh, life in his hands briefly and said no no it's fine I'll deal with it um, but essentially um, you can see him go back in uh, My Best Fiend he actually goes back to where he shot it and meets the two guys again who um, thought they'd do him a favour and knock off Kinski so <laughs> Essentially, if you, if you ever doubt yourself creatively or artistically, you need to discover the world of Werner Herzog and inspire yourself because this guy has never stopped anything remotely approaching common sense to stop him from achieving his dreams. And I think Robards is a, obviously an incredible actor, but clearly when you put him in the jungle, he doesn't have the same chops as when he's... Um, walking around the Washington Post. Yeah, I mean, there's something about pressed velvet that doesn't ever seem to go with Werner Herzog, especially at the time he's making Fitzgeralda. Wearing a pressed ah. velvet suit is not is not going to be happening Nothing. in any... There's there's no meetings, there's no shine shoes. Oh my God, I didn't know that. I love Fitzgeraldo. Mm. For anyone who hasn't seen it, um, there is a... Ma so, you know, there is a magic that movies like Fitzgeraldo and things like you know, apocalypse now, when you watch those films, it's like the things you are seeing had to be done. There is no tricks. There is no lie. When you need to move a boat over a mountain, you must move a boat over a mountain in real life. There are real people doing these things. Oh, it's really special. Oh, poor, poor Robards. Look, and he, you know, <clears throat> he got thrown out in the Battle of Cable Hogue. He's like at a hot spring or like a spring in, uh, for Peckinpah. He's, you know, he's in later Peckinpah stuff. And Peckinpah famously, I've just watched a great couple of docos about the making of Major Dundee, um, which recently... <clears throat> um, uh, back in 2005, got turned into a 4K print of the extended original Peck and Park cut, and it's now like a few weeks away um, uh, or a week or so away from being released on Blu-ray for the first time for folks, and I've had a, a sneak peek at it. And there's some great docos about like Peck and Park just taking everyone down to the desert in Mexico, like feeding people, and there's like maggots in the food, and these actors go up and go, hey, Sam, there's maggots in the food, and he's like, yeah, 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 whatever. Um, and, and they're just like, eat. So um, he must have must have had one too many peckinpahs under his belt when he went to Fitzgerald and was just like he was a broken man didn't have the didn't have the the internal fortitude to keep up with Werner because Werner seemed like an even a further breed than a peckinpah even. Seriously, uh, no, the stories—it's just insane. Like that boat, um, they Herzog dove under the boat with cables wrapped around his body. Like it's just—I just can't understand it. Like how you can do these things. Um, Although my favourite story about um, Herzog, you know he has a tattoo on his um, shoulder of a um, skeleton singing into an old 
50s kind of um, microphone. But people don't know the story of when and how he got it. So have you ever seen a movie called um, All the Money in the World? Yes. Famously not starring Kevin Spacey. Famously not starring Kevin Spacey. That, that's such a baller move from Ridley Scott. He's like, we'll reshoot the movie tomorrow. Yeah. New actor. See you, see you Spacey. Get sorry, sorry. No rock spiders here. Now, um, so you, if you've seen the movie, then you know that the, um, the chap in the middle of the story um, is the grandson of J. Paul Getty. And um, this guy was the guy who got a tattoo with Werner Herzog in San Francisco. And that's when Werner Herzog was there on the piss with his mate, new mate, Mr. Paul Getty. Um, and he was asking him about his ear, which I love, because you can imagine Werner <laughs> saying, tell me about the ear, does it still, do you still hear things with it? Um, can you hear the suffering of your, of your childhood self? Um, so, that's when Werner got his tattoo, which is the man has lived a life. Um, but, you know, I think I've kind of gone off piste. Um, <laughs> this is a great, dig- this is a great digression because if, or, yeah. if only, if, if only people and including myself as a podcaster could tap into our inner Werner. Cause I feel like it's like <laughs> Werner has the fearlessness and the candor of it. Like my, my four-year-old daughter. Like, like, you know, like, like, but he's got the eloquence of a poet. So it's like those things that seem obvious and things that like, you don't want to tread on anyone's toes by not possibly offending them. It's like Werner Herzog does not have that filter. He's like, I'm going to say what is in my mind, but I'm going to say it in such a way that is like so poetic and powerful. And, you know, you hear even great stories of Werner even working as recently on the Mandalorian when they had that, the child puppet, you know, the baby Yoda puppet that they developed and they're like, Oh, we might replace it with CG. And he's like, don't you cowards. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't use computer animation. Use the puppet, you cowards. Um, but yeah, like, you know, he's an old timer. And, you know, that's the, the very erudite and sophisticated Alan Pakula is not Werner Herzog. That's for sure. Nah, good God. Actually, it just sounds like a nightmare. Um, it does. Obviously, the guy knew his way around a camera, but um, I can't even imagine what the editing room was like. It would have been horrifying. I mean... It's like kind of Kubrick done to a thousand. Yeah, and, I mean, look, we, we hear those stories, um, you know, you make a, a movie like all the presidents manning, you've got a controlled situation and they had a great editor actually had a, a guy by the name of Robert Wolf who worked in the editorial teams of a couple of Peckinpah, excuse me, Peckinpah movies. And he was actually a Republican funnily enough. And he had some good, you know, they, they played, he's like, you know, let's, he, he kind of conv- convinced them and coerced them to um, change their original idea for the ending of the movie, which we can come back to. But, I think of like those guys who have worked with their pack empire and they come back with like a wild bunch and have got four years worth of raw footage that they have to wrangle into a cohesive picture. And then you get something like presidents and they've got like really sharp dailies and like, yep, it's takes, takes six and seven and we're good and just keep cutting and we're fine. Um, and then something like Coppola who shot, what did he shoot? Like apocalypse now 300 days, 300 days of film. A mountain, a mountain of film, like it's it's insane. But this is, Mm. you know, sometimes you need insanity, and sometimes you need sophistication and a nice like studio backlot in Burbank to build the Washington Mm. Post. 
Exactly. Oh, I, lo- I love your sto- I love your stories. I love your Werner impression. It goes. It's it's underutilized in your current field. Um, so I'm so <laughs> glad that you're here. And my friend, thank you so much for um, your consistent support and guidance uh, during my Madcap projects. I appreciate it so much. And thank you so much for being a part of the show and, and making time to be a part of it. Well, it's great fun. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, Oscar. He's the best, one of the best going around, one of the best that's ever done it in the Oz biz. Um, if you want to follow him, it's at BR260454. You don't catch much of him around on Twitter, but if you do, he's great people. Um, he has an incredible breadth of work. So if you just Google his name, you're going to see that across everything. I'm so grateful for him to be a part of the show. Guys, thank you for listening. Banger of a week this week. More great episodes, more great people. And we are hurtling towards the end of this project. And I want to thank everyone for just their incredible support, their incredible, uh, just just everything. I just want to thank you so much for being a part of the show. Uh, we have such a ball doing these and uh, I just want to say thanks. So subscribe, rate, review, everything helps. We'll catch you another episode a little bit later this week.